Welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I am Sarah Hendricks, and I'm here with the one and only Chris Dixon. Hey, everybody. Today, we're really lucky to have Seth Goldenberg on the podcast with us. And Seth is releasing his new book, Radical Curiosity. And we had a really interesting conversation with Seth about what it means to be curious and ask some really big questions and how asking big questions can inform the direction and the impact you have in your business and in some of the bigger pieces of the world. Yeah, not just big questions, but audacious and maybe even a little dangerous questions. So we hope you enjoy the podcast with Seth. So without further ado, here's Seth. Well, it's such a pleasure to speak to you, Seth. I know when we were working on our our podcast prep work yesterday, we were like, "This is going to be, this is going to be a conversation for the books." Um, <laughs> talking about radical curiosity, like you've got to give us a download on how you got here and what made you want to write a book about something so powerful. Well, uh, I'll, I appreciate your your question. I mean. I began my life as an artist. I was a young painter exhibiting in art galleries by the age of 11. Oh my and... God, 11? <laughs> yeah. What, what form were you doing? I was an oil painter. I, I was doing a true uh, Soho art gallery world. And I, I went to uh, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, as a painter. Originally. Oh my God, that's fantastic. I, and I just, I went to the dark side and became a designer, which is like, you know, it's like trading teams. There's the, the, <laughs> art, the design arts. And, you know, I think either way, most of the art and design mindset is really a practice of asking questions. And for me, uh, you know, I've, lived in the arts, I've lived in design, I've been an entrepreneur, I've been an activist, I've been a business leader. And for me, the commonality of my life has been curiosity. And so uh, the book was something I really, uh, I started prior to COVID, uh, but I spent most of the pandemic trying to codify my practice as something uh, that is a blend of many fields, but the idea of curiosity, the idea of questioning was always the theme. I think the thing that draws me in the most is, or, or I shouldn't say the most, but you know, kind of breaking the norms by asking big questions. That's something for us at The One Thing, like we want people to dream big and think big. Um, and in doing that, you really have to ask big questions. Um, were you during your your childhood and into the design phase of your life like what are some of the bigger questions that you were asking yourself hmm. yeah I, I think it's big is an interesting word right? <laughs> big questions I often use the word audacious or mm. dangerous I think part of the act of radical questioning. So radical curiosity, radical comes from the root Latin word of radicalis, which really means about getting to the roots of things, getting to the underpinnings, right? So it's not a kind of passive curiosity, like, oh, look, over there, there's a bird, right? It's a kind of intentional, why does this happen this way? This can't be the only way this works, which is a very much a kind of of creative design innovator mind. But I think what you're getting at, I, I love that we're starting right there. I, I think that uh, I wrote the book in large part because I don't think we're asking the essential questions. I don't think we're often comfortable in asking those discomfortable kind of questions like, what do we really mean by health? Is education working? What is learning? What do we mean by justice? What is safety? Should I be able to eat anything on the planet at any whim of any moment I have? Right? Like we've become these creatures of comfort and we're born into what I call these kind of legacy narratives, right? No one believes school works, but we'll throw you in jail if you don't attend, right? There's these kind of strange paradoxes that we've 
uh, allowed and adopted in our world, but we kind of like walk on eggshells and don't actually ask the hard questions very frequently. Well, we just accept them. And we just say, okay, I'll just do this because this is what I've always been taught or told, or this is what my parents said was right and wrong. And no one's saying, well, is it? (laughs) No doubt. You talked about education and the question of, is education working? And somewhat ironically, I feel like a traditional education system doesn't train us to ask these questions. You're really more uh, programmed to demonstrate a certain set of skills or knowledge versus coming in with this, this radical curiosity. So asking the question about education and if it's working being a demonstration of of radical curiosity it's it's ironic because it might be the the flaw in the education process itself uh, absolutely it's almost like it is both the diagnosis and the antidote right <laughs> to, to your point i mean i i have a chapter in the book called uh, education is too big to fail but maybe it should mm. right I mean, I think the, you know, uh, just because we're uh, we're entering the the dangerous doorway of education, I, I, I'm I'm with you. I I, uh, I wonder if part of what has happened is we have kind of commodified knowledge, like it's an object, right? So in in that section, one of the hypotheses I propose, I mean, imagine that the terminal degree in business is a master's in business administration. The term administration always surprised me. Like it's as though all of knowledge is a kind of playbook, and we're simply administering solutions that already exist. We're facilitating and managing pre-existing knowledge. That worked in a certain era of industrial growth, but now we've reached a kind of entangled complexities where there may not be blueprint solutions. And actually the project of learning is the invention of new knowledge, not the kind of application of pre-existing knowledge. So it changes the even purpose of why do we even need education? I mean, not to just go right at it and on the, the universities, but I know that when I was in college, the best learning I had was by going out and doing. I mean, I, I don't even remember what the textbook said. I remember that I wrote a uh, a thesis on censorship on South Park, but I don't remember much of anything else. So it's fascinating to have this conversation because really to go out and experience and to do um, and to ask these questions, like we're doing ourselves a disservice by not asking them. Yeah, one part you you need to ask the the questions or to be genuinely and radically curious and approach the conversation, but you, you probably need to be a good listener to actually uh, absorb the response, right? So it's both both parts of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the book opens with a kind of premise, which, you know, kind of rattles a few people, but it proposes that curiosity may be an endangered species, right? And I think one of the uh, implications of that, which I think you're describing quite well, right? I mean, if we are curious, <laughs> we're interested in the results or the way things unfold, even if it's not in our self-interest. And I think what you're describing is kind of the art of dialogue to be both an actor and a listener in a real live exchange. I mean, Beautiful dialogues, real conversations are acts of discovery for both stakeholders. And I wonder where that space exists in society today. And that's what one of the reasons we invented a kind of salon. And I think I imagine you create these kind of forums, this kind of dialogue for exactly a similar reason, which is maybe how we found one another. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying here. And it, it makes sense, especially in the Current state, current affairs, you know, we may ask a question and then find that the the answer we discover is not in line with the, I guess, popular narrative or, um, you know, the, the messaging that seems to be at the forefront. And where I think there's a tendency to ignore that instead of accepting that there's there's something else there. Mm-hmm. Well, and that would be if if you're going to chase these 
audacious and dangerous questions, you probably have to have a level of preparedness for what you're going to uncover when you get there. I think that's maybe a piece of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you named this term narrative and and maybe your point follow on of, are we ready for the narratives that we have been raised through and that we've built our identities around? What if those narratives implode? What if those narratives get shaken and, you know, kind of fall apart? I mean, I think in part, one of the, uh, I mean, the pandemic was, of course, terrible on, you know, many resonant levels. But I do think that so much of a shock to the system of, wait, I can't leave my home. Wait, my kids can't be in a room with a teacher. Oh, I can't travel. I can't. Suddenly, that level of interruption in our narrative forces us to question, to your point, well, Maybe I have to re-question all kinds of these things. The existential threat of business as usual requires us to actually finally maybe confront questions of, is this the way it is? Is it the only way it is? And you kind of re-prioritize and you begin to uh, have to embrace by force or by circumstance what matters. Yeah. And we're, we're talking, I think, a lot about the, the big the big questions and the, the the bigger curiosity, but there's a clear tie to me and just even the small conversations that you have on a right on a day-to-day basis with your team or with your your mentor or um you know inside of a business or with customers. And you know, are there any you know tools for someone that you want to discuss uh that could help them get started in improving their ability to default to a more um you know powerful curiosity? I, I will, but I'll only do it if you give me permission to challenge and push back a little bit. 100%. Yes. Yes. See, I'm even in that framework, what you just did for me is you said, so great, there's all these big thorny questions. That's adorable stuff. Yeah. The future of the human <laughs> condition. Yeah. Health, learning, justice. That's adorable. Let's push it over there. What can I just do right now in these 12 minutes? Actually, part of the problem is we keep pushing them over on the side. Mm. When you're asking, what can you and your team? Look, I think every social system is facing an existential crisis. Every business is, re, is having to relook in the mirror about what value it really creates in the world. And I think if we don't embrace and enable us to really confront these big human condition, human experience questions, we're just moving the chair to Titanic. Yeah, that, that's a very fair point. And we we believe in a concept called thinking big but going small. Uh, and I guess I'm kind of thinking in that context. It's like don't lose sight of the the bigger question. That's an important question, and you should not push it to the side. Uh, within that bigger question, is there a way to go smaller so that you can have some tangible traction towards that 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 bigger why or that bigger question. Yeah, and I just wonder if what what I'm maybe lobbying for is maybe to kind of flip the frame. Like I think there's a little bit of an extractive economic model that assumes big is good or bad or small is good or bad. I'm not sure that size is the only way for us to talk about these things. I think for me, I think that we've re oriented and disoriented ourselves around what is meaningful and what is valuable, right? I mean, look, gone are the days of inventing an app to swipe left, to buy shit and move things back and forth. You will not get millions and millions of dollars to create the 937,000th app this month. Like money is not going to be as easy as it used to be. And I think actually that's a really good thing. I think the new frontier, the new horizon of where pioneers and innovators and business leaders and managers, whether you're inside a large organization or you're an independent entrepreneur, wherever you are, you know what the next 
billion dollar you know google play is maybe it's water maybe it's how we feed ourselves maybe it's how we learn it's actually those social entrepreneur terrains that we used to think were philanthropic do-gooder things but i think the kind of rebooting of the maslow's hierarchy of needs is actually an ex- exponential wealth creating enterprise and i think everybody needs to just kind of reassess is what I'm doing creating value? How do I determine for myself, my own personal and my company's metrics on, is this yielding real value and legacy and impact in the world? Or am I just moving things back and forth? Mm. I love the analogy of just moving the chair back and forth or just moving the chair or move, moving things back and forth because it it's true. I think even with within personal um, development, you're, you're like, oh, I want to learn this new skill or I'm trying to deal with a a very minute, dumb, and I'll say dumb in quotations, you know, problem that I'm dealing with with this friend. Um, And if you're just moving the chair back and forth and aren't getting to the root of it, whether it's a quote unquote dumb situation with a friend or how we're living lives as humans on this earth, you still need to face and have those those answer those questions um, and the idea of dealing with them head on and not being afraid to be radically can or I almost said radical candor. I'm so sorry. Great Seth. book, by the way. Um, <laughs> radically curious, you know, that's, I would imagine in a lot of your research, that's what you've found holds people back to their, they're fearful of what's on the other side. If they f- were faced with that root problem or root, discussion topic well i'll give i'll give you a quick example i I sometimes uh utilize to help illustrate the idea so imagine that all of the resources all the public attention all of the work on healthcare and obamacare in particular right imagine that the thousands and thousands of people that worked on debated reported analyzed you know, whatever it was, some 10 million sheet piece of legislation that was Obamacare a decade plus ago, and all of the energy that was placed. What we forget is that Obamacare, from my point of view, from a radically curious lens, Obamacare wasn't about a question, what is health? What do we mean by health? What in the 21st century with all the medicine, all the technology, what is our moral an ethical model in our nation? How do we define in our society what a healthy life is? Obamacare is about who pays for it. Obamacare is about who gets the invoice, who gets the bill. Is it a public cost? Is it a private cost? Is the employer, the employee? And look, I was a part of the energy bringing Obama to office. not about Obama. I think we've had so much emphasis on the transactions on the surface We don't even realize that we're not even asking the core essential question, right? So we think we're having a national healthcare debate. We're really talking about which procurement office gets the invoice of the bill. We never actually talked about our vision of health in society. Now imagine that on every social system, right? So Black Lives Matter happens. Do we talk about race? Do we talk about justice? Do we talk about safety? Me too. Do we talk about gender? What winds up happening is here we are, you know, great resignation. We're going, what's your work from home policy? We're still treating the symptom. Who cares where the button seat is? That's the issue. We're, we're now having committees writing white papers about what hours you're working from what office. We tend to treat the symptom and stay in a comfortable transaction and not necessarily really know a methodology or a language for getting to really the kind of core actual assumption about the models we're choosing to live by. Seth, there's a lot of smart people in office. There's a lot of smart people amongst us. What do you think holds those smart people back from asking those questions? Because there's some, there is something there that is keeping us in this comfortability that is not helping to advance um, our growth as a nation, as a human race. So 
what do you think that cause is? Yeah, I think we're not so comfortable not knowing, right? We, we want to know. We want to hold the tangible, right? It's harder to hold the space for the intangible. It's harder to live in a kind of imaginative process-oriented space. I, I don't doubt, to your point, that there are extraordinary talents in the world. I think we've designed the process of inquiry out of public life. I think we've designed process out of organizations. We get an assignment. We go, we move into action. We wear it like a badge, right? I'm an action-oriented leader. I have a bias for action. I'm all for action. Trust me. I seek impact and outcomes just like anyone else. But I think we also need to slow down. I think we also need to kind of assess what question are we trying to solve in the first place? The question is the origin of a kind of leadership and problem-solving continuum. So which part of Pandora's box are we opening? I mean, which trajectory are we heading towards? We don't even know what the question is. We move right into action. Suddenly, I'm on the committee for the parking for the conference. I don't even know what the conference is about. I'm managing where the cars go. That's such a great point is we are very action-focused and not very, well, let's stop and think about what we're trying to achieve and why. Do you think that that tends to... like We're talking a lot in terms of organizations and teams... Do you think this stems from an individual as well? Like, is there a radical curiosity within oneself that needs to be achieved before moving on to these much more audacious questions? Hmm. That, that's that's an interesting one. I, I don't know if I've thought about it in that way. I mean, I think I, I believe radical curiosity is a practice, right? It's not. It's not an abstract curriculum or a school of thought. It's a kind of lifestyle. It's a way, it's a leadership practice, right? Um, and, I, and I think that there's so many different uh, frameworks, but I think what we have not had in some time is a conversation about every one of the frameworks and how they kind of maybe mix together in a martini glass that allows for truly holistic interdisciplinary kinds of ways of thinking and leading and learning. Um, and I think for me, radical curiosity, it's, it's a kind of uh, instinct that I believe we're all born with. I think in, in childhood, there, uh, I don't know, but the, the book is broken into seven narratives. And one of the narratives is youth. And I believe that every child is born curious. Youth is a time of curiosity. You know, I think Sir Ken Robinson talked about, you know, we educate creativity out of young people, right? It's not as though, I think we have this idea of additive, like, because we live in a capitalistic skill-based language, you just keep adding skills and imprinting them onto people. I think it's more interesting to me of what we unlearn than what we learn, right? Mindset is a is a crazy thing. I mean, that's certainly something that we talk about here at the one thing of the the if you're going to, as Chris was talking about, like think big and go small, there's generally a lot of pieces of your I won't say psyche, but of what you do that you have to unlearn in order to move in a direction that allows you to think big. Um, like I'll, for me, for example, um, when I first started with the one thing like failure, we set big goals and I'm like, no, I'm not willing to set big goals and fail. Like I don't want to fail, but it's the growth and the journey and the trajectory that you put yourself on, not necessarily the failure itself. And I think this speaks a lot to that of working people through the mindset of, you know, unlearning and then learning how to approach things from a, a radical curious standpoint or a radically curious standpoint. I like that.
Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash O-N-E-5-0 and use code O-N-E-5-0 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. So in, in the, maybe it ties to this, but in the book, uh, you say time travel isn't reserved for DeLoreans. So what do you, what do you mean by time travel? Is that part of it? Like being able to unwind things you've learned or is, what's the connection? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a fun chapter. I mean, uh, time is one of the seven narratives that uh, I examine. And I think that uh, I chose time because I think time is a really fascinating variable and theme in just business and life that often remains uh, kind of uninvestigated and especially in business, right? We, to your point, I love hearing your story of setting certain goals. Will I fail? Will I not? Imagine all of the PowerPoints, all the keynotes, all the decks of business models and concepts. And we spend so much time analyzing and kind of making sense of all the building blocks to make an opportunity come together. And time as a variable is kind of set on the time on the sideline. Like, yeah, there's a X, Y graph. Yeah, that'll happen over 18 months. We don't actually think of time as a currency that itself can be innovated. So the idea of time travel, uh, that particular piece is really all about how ideas are received by different people and different audiences and arrive at a different time scale. Almost like time has a gravity and time has contextual uh, kind of a suitcase of weight and baggage. So if I live in this geography, if I had these previous experiences, an idea that arrives to you and an idea that arrives to me, based on me as a receiver, it's not as though the idea travels through the world in an equitable fashion, right? We are all living in different Time scale. So I use the anecdotal kind of, uh, you know, the colloquialism. Ah, she's ahead of her time, right? This is actually a, a military term about flight. This is the root of where that phrase came from. Finding the right balance that pilots were flying. And there's an engineering term about the right equilibrium of getting to flight. So imagine that we are either ahead or behind the kind of wing as you know the wind goes below and above and we take flight. Are we ready for an idea? Are we ahead of the curve, behind the curve? It is, was it time for that concept to kind of move as a cultural meme or a movement? You know, what time are we ready for certain shifts in society to unfold? Right? The time travel, time travel is not a science fiction idea. The way that time is a factor in how businesses succeed or fail, ideas spread like wildfire or they're not there too early, time is actually a key design feature that us designers need to embrace and we have not historically. Mm. Yeah, I think about different businesses and what, what came up to me and how time ties back to their strategy and planning and Maybe the curiosity they have about you know what they're going to embark on. Like if you're a publicly traded large organization, like the greatest interval that you're typically working in is a quarter, right? You need to produce results in a quarter, and the limitations that that kind of time constraint produces for you, and what at least either by perception or reality, 
what that can create for a business versus someone who is runs their own smaller shop and they've you know got a good revenue stream and they can think like okay where do we want to go in 10 years and you know ask really big questions about the impact they want to have on the world and like the different leverage that like i said either by perception or reality that you have in making those kinds of decisions well, absolutely. And I'll, I'll, even, I'll even go much further. I love that you gave the quotient of 10 years. So when I was at Bruce Mao Design, Design Studio, one of the kind of godfathers of the design thinking field, and he recently there's a great documentary on Bruce Mao called Mao that's uh, available, kind of chronicling some of the incredible work he's done. The case study is profiled where Mecca in Saudi Arabia, right? Mecca. Mm-hmm. asked Bruce Mao Design to imagine a future of the design of the experience of Mecca. And he proposed, in order to make it sustainable and resilient, we need to do a 1,000-year plan of the experience of Mecca. That's thinking big. That's thinking big. Jane Goodall famously talks about how Indigenous elders, the the kind of wise counsel of an indigenous tribe, would make a decision based on how it affected their community seven generations into the future. I mean, short-term thinking may have been what's gotten us here. I was just thinking that because we were, I mean, we just had a conversation about being present and living in the now, but there seems to be some consequence to having these big discussions or or challenging discussions or life-changing discussions. You can't necessarily, like, yeah, you can be physically present, but you have to have the ability to think in a trajectory that goes all the way past what your mind really is going to allow. For your example with water, I mean... Well, water is an interesting example because uh, I don't have the data right in front of me, but there's a a friend of mine was telling me about a community in, I believe, Spain that has a water board, an actual council, a kind of government body that looks at the use of water for community as a kind of utility, as, as a community asset. And it's the same entity, the actual same governance body has been caretaking the use of water in their community for something like 5,000 years, right? And I think part of what we're talking about now is, I mean, it's short-term thinking, it's long-term thinking, but I think we're also going to be living in an era where systems thinking will be a prerequisite to being a leader in the future. We have been historically thinking about the pieces in isolation. And we're not considering what, you know, there's lots of language for it now, the circular economy, the kind of systems view of holistic impact, upstream, downstream. But systems thinking, whether it's interior to your organization, in the sector you're working, in the climate or economic or social impact or social justice lenses, we are no no longer living in a time where you can separate these pieces. Could you give an example uh, for listeners on what uh, you mean by systems thinking or uh, systematic thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the difference between... We used to think about one-to-one relationships. Industrial... Uh, kind of era enabled us to think about one to many. But I think there, the systems thinking kind of mental model is to understand uh, the full movie, the full film in which imagine there's a kind of uh, flip book, right? There's thousands of photographs that make up one kind of narrative. So from to, let's use your water, you know, from the source of water to the bottling of water to the distribution of water to the consumption of water to what happens with that bottle to how then the plumbing moves our waste back into the ecology. I mean, the full cycle of every step along the way, we experience only one 
step in the flip book of water, when we consume the water. Supply chain is not just some you know, back of house thing anymore. Supply chain is the full picture, the full purview of how that moment arrived and how it will descend through the world. And whether you're dealing with healthcare, whether you're dealing with food, whether you're dealing with entertainment, now we're starting to design for all of the domino effect pieces and how they influence one another, right? That's a shift in thinking that leaders are more and more adopting and is becoming a kind of operating system design in businesses. And some of the more sophisticated businesses have have been doing this for quite some time, but I think the knowledge is starting to become more flat so that this kind of mindset is available to almost all of us now, right? That useful, Mary. I think that's the analogy that immediately pops to mind is we're no longer taking a broken foundation and trying to build a house on it. We're actually going back, looking at why the foundation is broken, and re uh, re-engineering what a new house would look like if we would have gone back, fixed the foundation. You know, and I think that you said it earlier of kind of adding additive, like adding pieces on top of each other, but not truly understanding the root cause. And that's where I think a lot of that stale mindset lives is, well, let's just fix in the now, whatever the problem is versus going all the way back to the beginning, understanding how we got here and then deciding what a solution looks like from there. Absolutely. And and by the way, I just, I love that just to, add on to a beautiful thing you're saying. I mean, I, I think as you open, you're saying we no longer are designing on broken foundation. I think one of the things I want to add to systems thinking that maybe is not core to systems thinking, but is, I think, a, an important element of radical curiosity is who is the we? Mm. Right? So here's another one of those kind of uncomfortable questions. When we really talk about inclusivity, when we really talk about justice, when we really talk about race, power, where power lies, who has the authority to ask these questions? We're talking about radical curiosity and questioning, right? Who gets to author the question? Who gets to frame the brief? Who is the we, right? Uh, this is something we're interested in and experimenting with in our studio. It's beyond just participation, right? I think we need to kind of frame this conversation around systems thinking beyond just that ecological or operational, but there is in a systems or ecosystem design, there is real questions of power embedded in this, whether it's climate justice, social justice, ethics, the questions of even just a point of view of how there are bias that we don't even see, who the we is, is a very big determinant of how that question is framed and thus who benefits from the resolution of such a question. Yeah, probably relative to a scenario or or the question itself in some cases, or maybe there's a need to expand or contract the we based on, you know, what you're trying to accomplish or what you know you're discovering as you answer the questions or ask the questions so say say a little more about that if you don't mind sure i i think when you say well who's we like who has the power it's uh or perhaps who should be included in the conversation when you're asking some or you're being radically curious and asking some bigger questions and i i think my point was really that it can be relative based on what you discover in the process. Could, could be. Uh, I don't necessarily agree or disagree. I'm trying to kind of uh, embrace your, your frame inside of uh, the, the, the book's architecture. Sure. You know, I, th- I think one of, one of the seven narratives is value. And it's a kind of play on values and value, economic value, and the values that we as a kind of society espouse. I think the question, you know, I think we need to ask, just because you've opened the door in the first few minutes for me to be uh, rambunctious, one of, the, one of the names of the chapters is, do we value life? 
right? I think we have a new level of accountability for how the process itself is even designed. So you're saying, well, maybe the questions are relative and you discover new questions in the process. I would agree, but that puts a great amount of agency, great amount of power, great amount of authority in the process itself, yielding the right kinds of questions or engaging stakeholders that become clearly relevant to whatever problem-solving process you're on. And just not to make it esoteric, but, you know, the uh, so that gets more tangible. I mean, Do We Value Life chapter is was written at a time, a peak of Black Lives Matter. And after watching, I don't know, 57 uh, of the world's most gorgeous nature ecological documentaries on Netflix, so we couldn't go anywhere in our house. So we've got this explosion of do we value human life? And do we value non-human life? And how can we ask ourselves real questions about the design of models and policies and practices that are those narratives that we live by, while all these questions about whether or not we truly express a value for life every day in both, in your terms, big and small ways? Well, we could ask the question, how do we define life? Oh boy. And that could inform then, you know, what uh, what we value or not, because it's not a clearly defined, I think, or perhaps it's not clearly defined what we mean when we say life. So like non-human life, for example, what is a life? And do we value those things? Well, in some countries, ecological systems have rights now. Yeah. So to your point, there's actually some really interesting case models and innovation around bringing human-like human rights. By the way, in the same way we in legal policy, we've given corporations rights. Imagine we give entire forests or species rights in order to help shift our own mental models to orient how we might engage those stakeholders or those uh, living beings. So maybe, I, I'm, I wonder if it's a, it's a great question, have we defined life? It's the same kind of frame of, do we know what health is, right? Do we know what these terms are? I think it's a great essential question. And think of it like this, part of, again, part of the reason for writing the book is, where do we go to have that conversation, right? Because of course, the one interpretation of your question becomes the discourse surrounding abortion and the policy and the recent Supreme Court decision. That is one forum and format in which a definition of life has been framed. Do we accept that? Is that the right forum to define life? Where in society do we even, before a decision or a solution is framed, where do we experiment and explore and enjoy the discourse of exploring many active, to your point, if you're looking for a definition, how do we explore 57 definitions and scenarios in order to kind of, just like we do in business, prototype and rapid pilot frameworks to understand what their implications will be? Sarah looks perplexed. No. <laughs> perplexed. It's just it, when you start having these types of conversations, when you start getting radically curious, like immediately my motherly instinct or whatever you want to call it is like, how do I go out and save the world now? Because these conversations and questions aren't being asked. And now I want to move into action because you know there are things that need my attention or there's there's people out there that are suffering that need people to come out and and ask questions and get to root causes and make things better for you me and all of us so i think it's it's not that i'm perplexed it's a little like shit i need to go to work like there's stuff that needs to get done and i'm sure seth and you tell us like when you have radical curiosity, how does it change you as a person? Does it turn you into, you know, 
I, I don't know what the, the terminology would be, but like for me, it's just like, okay, let's go. Let's go get started. I mean, I, I love your energy. I mean, you know, that you're talking about, you know, the, the inspiration of contributing to what the world could be, right? I mean, for me, that's it's a kind of activism. And I think even that, like kind of breaking down and taking uh, the mythology out of what activism is, right? It might be that in certain generations, the best expression of activism is a kind of protest or a critique. I believe that we're living in a time where we can't even afford, we have an urgency to act, to your point, uh, that critique and protest is no longer enough. We have to move past a critique and into another stage that is about imagining and articulating an alternative. And I think this is actually some of the the kind of uh, Achilles heel of much of activism, that actually the most profound activism is an expression of our imaginations. And so if curiosity is an endangered species, Mm. imagination is one of the most important regenerative resources on earth. Imagination is where we actually decide and imagine to literally construct an alternative world that isn't, doesn't look like the one we, we see today and goes to work on realizing it. For me, that's a kind of almost a kind of utopian idealism, which when you say, you know, what, what, how do you put into practice if you, if you kind of welcome radical curiosity into your heart and mind, how do you begin? Look, I have a section of the book where I talk about uh, utopia. When, when did utopia become not cool? Like suddenly the dystopian, you know, entertainment industry, there's only $1 trillion in box office revenue on the world is ending films, right? Like, (laughs) why do we get so dark and twisty and depressed? Like, I'd like to live. I'd like to imagine something we call aliveness. That the, The idea of an ideal, a utopian state, activism as a way to imagine and work towards realizing something more, something better, something different. I mean, that is the highest expression of radical curiosity to me. So I think your instinct, uh, I like that you called it motherly. That's a very beautiful way to see it and make it personal. But I mean, that's not surprising, right? Much of activism, much of utopian ideals is about how our next generation, how we will leave a legacy better than we arrived to it. So um, that's what I mean also by like systems thinking, generational thinking, the Jane Goodall seven generations. I think, you know, uh, look, I'm all for joy. I don't want it to just be more Ovaltine, please, but we better do our part while we're here and make it awesome. That is, I'm, I'm like in a, I'm in a, phase of my thoughts are just kind of running because it, it it is when you take the time to sit and ask these questions and to be curious or or you know beyond that be radically curious it just transforms the way you think when you give it the time and we just haven't given it the time so seth what is and i'm sure we could continue this conversation forever but what is the one thing you'd like our audience to take away from this conversation? Uh, I think uh, I, I, I was fair warned that this is your famous question. <laughs> <laughs> In the spirit of the one thing. Yes. Yeah. Your, your, your signature mic drop moment. I love it. It's so good. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately, I only have 180 things I hope they took away. <laughs> but I'll, I'll go with your one thing, you know? I mean, for me, and even let me just make it locally, situationally to this very beautiful exchange the three of us are having, I feel that I'm even experiencing you having a moment of radical curiosity in which in real time, you are not just asking questions, but what I think some of your you know, dialogue is revealing is that you begin to realize that maybe we have a little bit more power than we think. I talk about 
what I call the cultural interregnum. I think we're living in a moment I call the cultural interregnum. So interregnum often refers to the kind of change of power from one government to the next or one leader to the next, this kind of transition of, of power. But I think it's not just that governments are in these in-between states, right? That time between an election and a change of of guard, I think society is kind of going through a bit of an interregnum. Like, like all of the world is having a Yosemite operating system upgrade on our Mac computer, right? <laughs> and we're deciding what the codes are. We're deciding what the values are that we're going to code into our operating system. But that is a participatory sport. Like, we have more influence over that code than we think. Mm-hmm. We can decide. No, there's not just two genders. Whoa, my grandparents are flipping out. They don't even know what that means, right? We are deciding equitable or inequity, right? We're, we're actually, it's not like one room, there's not one conference room, but in public spheres all over the world, expressed in new domains and tools in this wildly exciting time to be alive, we're deciding what comes next. And we all have power to be a part of that, big or small, to use your frame. I just think all small, eventually, and quicker than we think, ladders up to the human condition. I think that's the project. Like We are all rewriting the code on the human condition and whether you're trained in like computer science code or not, you can put an integer into that new code system. And that's wildly exciting. Like that's what I want people to take away. That's awesome. If, if uh, sorry, <laughs> if, if uh, listeners want to pick up your book and learn more about being radically curious and, and everything that you've talked about in greater detail, where can they uh, find your stuff? The book uh, comes out on August 23rd and uh, our website is curiosityand.company. My uh, studio, my company that we're experimenting with these ideas. We have a kind of think tank and a design studio and uh, a community center. It's called Curiosity & Co. Curiosity & Company. And if you go to that website, there'll be more about our work uh, and books will be on sale around the world on August 23rd. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the new book and we really appreciate you being here to share all your insight and uh, really, really fun conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much, Seth. I, I, I love the dialogue and thanks for uh, welcoming me into your journey. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more episodes or learning about the 411, perhaps you need some individual coaching, head to theonething.com. That's the one thing with a number one dot com. Also, you can send us a voice note by heading to speakpipe.com slash the one thing. And that is also with the number one or just send us an email podcast at the one thing. And that's the number one dot com. We'll see you soon.